a semester. Um, generally, adults don't live by semesters, but we're going to. So this is the end of the semester, students. Um, and we're going to finish strong by focusing on weakness again. So that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. And I've absolutely loved 2 Corinthians. In fact, I loved it so much, there was a point today where I thought, I'm just going to do a sermon tonight and not have any, any conversation, any, any back and forth. I just want to dive into this. But, um, but there, there's lots of room for, for good conversation as well. So I um, really want to get through all these notes tonight because um, I can't roll them into next week like I usually do. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we count it a great privilege to be here. We pray that you would speak to us and tell us what you want us to learn from 2 Corinthians. Thank you for being our strength and weakness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes it difficult to view weakness biblically? There's a head scratcher to kick it off, make sure everyone's awake. What makes it difficult to view weakness biblically? Yeah, because weakness. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the world says weakness is a bad thing. Weakness is a weakness, and weakness is not something to be heralded. You don't put um, on your you know your uh, resume um, a list of your weaknesses. Generally, I mean you do, but everyone says uh, pride, you know, whatever. But I'm too, I, I'm too good of a I'm too dedicated to my work. Yeah, <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, viewing. Weakness biblically is very challenging because our culture puts a real premium on strength. And frankly, our human nature is to put a much higher premium on our strengths than our weaknesses. And so, um, you know, I, I talked last week, I was just real honest about, I would prefer, you know, the Second Corinthians opens with, Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. And it goes on and says comfort about ten more times after that. And what I mentioned last week was that I think a lot of us, and if I'm honest, I, I, I'm in this place a lot, I would rather just be comfortable rather than need the God of comfort. Like, no, God, you got lots to deal with. Just make me comfortable. Like, sort of, it's like you can almost spin it to make it seemingly noble and selfless, but it's all completely selfish. And in the same, the same vein, I think most of us would much rather God capitalize on our strengths than our weaknesses. But, but 2 Corinthians turns that on its head. Um, in fact, my view of Paul has changed because when I'm in Romans and I'm looking at how Paul is so wonderfully equipped to do what God has called him to do, I almost look at that and think, man, God is capitalizing on Paul's strengths. Paul, you know, he's, he's got these inclinations. He's kind of an angry guy. He's got a mouth on him, but he's a, he's a fearful writer, but he's not real fearful in person. So he, he's the, of course he's going to be the one to write these things. And, and he had this conversion experience that was, that was amazing, but he but, but he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't the kind of guy that would hold on to the conversion experience. It's just too shallow. And I, I, I kind of would characterize and kind of break down Paul's makeup to where I would almost think of Paul as being a guy that God capitalized on his strengths for kingdom good. Uh, but that is not the case. We, we see a lot of counterintuitive things, uh, seemingly counterintuitive things about weakness in 2 Corinthians. And so a big part of this is really understanding how to view weakness biblically and how to make sure we are clear on what it means to be a Christian in this world, like how we move as Christians in this world, in our culture. Uh, 
Who were the super apostles in the Corinthian church? They were talked about a few times. Yeah. Yeah, they were popular. They were the preachers that said what the people wanted to hear. Here you have this new Christian church, and in comes these people that. So they said what the people wanted to hear, but what, what were some of their characteristics? They were good looking, Yeah. Good looking, articulate, impressive, well trained. Like. Yeah, and they would rail against Paul. They'd be like, they would kind of, oh, Paul, you mean the guy who's been shipwrecked and beaten up every time he shares the gospel? The short guy who's bald with the big nose, that Paul? Like, that's kind of how they would, they would disparage him. And so these super apostles in the Corinthian church were sort of these, you know, you picture, I was going to do, uh, I was going to put up a picture of Pat Tillman. Anyone know who Pat Tillman is? The ranger that um, died in Friendly Fire, but he, he, he's got that chiseled jaw. He just looks like a poster boy for anything manly. You know, and he's and it's he's got the right shoulder to waist ratio to be uh, you know a, a commanding person in front of a group, and so these super apostles were um, they were like when we say super apostles, if you don't know what we're talking about, you may think we're talking about a good thing. So from for the rest of the night, when we say super apostles, we're going to use air quotes super apostles because there's nothing super about them from a kingdom perspective. In fact. They're doing things completely backward from God's design because of the way they move and what they depend on. So what were their apparent strengths? They looked the part, they sounded the part, and how did that, what strength did that give them with the people? They're very popular and well-liked. Popular and well-liked, and what else? They didn't make waves. They didn't make waves. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell people what they want to hear. Don't call anyone out. They prided themselves on how uh, the Corinthian church had, a, had an issue of priding themselves on how tolerant they were of sin. So when you're tolerant of sin, division is inevitably something that follows. But that's the kind of don't make waves. The, the thing I'm getting at here is that the people trusted the super apostles. Because when someone stands, says something um, eloquently and in a way that is, um, sounds strong uh, and in a way that is um, believable, and in a way that is impressive, and in a way that is unwavering, and sure, and confident, you have a tendency to trust that person. It was funny, we had an issue with uh, some of the church leadership this week over uh, what was just a, a, a not big issue. And, um, and it, was, it was either yes or no. Okay, so it was a yes or no issue. Either this happened or this did not happen. And there were a couple guys who were like, oh yeah, that happened. I don't, did it? I wasn't quite sure. But it was funny because this guy gave his account of it happening. This guy gave his account of it happening. This guy gave an even more detailed account of it happening. And I found myself saying, well, I guess it happened. I mean, I'm not going to go against, you know, such sureness. And I was like, God, it's still irking me. So I picked up the phone and I called the person who had the answer. I said, hey, did this happen? Nope, never happened. Duh. But I was, I was kind of, convinced by the sureness with which other men were speaking. It was a funny situation. It was not a big deal. Don't worry, the church isn't in trouble. We didn't, we didn't do something backwards or, or uh, vile or wicked. Um, but their apparent strengths were they looked the part, they sounded the part, and so they were trusted by the people. So what were some of the apparent weaknesses of Paul and other Christians during this time? 
So you have their strengths, which are really evident, but then you have these weaknesses that are really obvious in Paul and other Christians. What were some of those weaknesses? Yeah, Paul didn't talk good. Yeah, he, he, was, he, he, he was not eloquent. Yeah. 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 Yeah, these guys over here he seem to have their stuff together, but Paul is always has a black eye and always has scars and scrapes and always looks tired and haggard and worn out as though he's been shipwrecked and beaten and and in and, and, and fear of all kinds of things. So um, there was just the apparent the, just the weakness of Paul in his in his communication. What about other Christians other than Paul? What, what was some of the issues with Christians during that time who weren't Paul? They were blank. Poor. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of poverty-stricken Christians, and because they were Christians, they couldn't find uh, work. They were questioned. They were rejected. And there, was all, there was all kinds of suspicion around Christians. So we have poverty, calamity, rejected messages. He was bald. He was short. He had a big nose. He was untrained. He had a thorn in his side. So the thorn in the side, we don't know what it was, but we know that whatever it was, it made him a perpetually weak. It was perpetual weakness. So we don't know what it was. We don't know if it was a particular sin. We don't know if it was a physical ailment. I, I tend to think it was something physical, just in, in, as I read and spend more time in Second Corinthians, but that's it's not a fact. But it was something that made him continually aware of weakness. It made him weak, he felt weak, and he was aware of that weakness. So uh, last week, we closed with this challenging question of who you most identify with, right? That was where we closed last week, who you most identify with. Do you see yourself as a super apostle who is self-sufficient and impressively strong? And so I asked that question in that way. Do you see yourself as a super apostle who... God capitalizes on my strengths, and good for him, I have many of them. You know, is that, is that your approach? But most people would be like, no, no one thinks that. Well, do you aspire to being a super apostle? Do you aspire to being the kind of person who is so sharp, so eloquent, so well-dressed, so chiseled, so in shape, so the right hair and the teeth and, and the ability to, to, to capture people's attention? Do you aspire to be more like a super apostle than you would Paul? I mean, really, if you put Paul and a super apostle side by side, would you go, I want to be like him, the bruised one, the guy with his tongue hanging out of his mouth because he's so worn out? Like, which one are, do you feel inclined to move toward? Do you feel inclined to trust? Do you see yourself as a member of the Corinthian church, preferring the leadership of the super apostle types? I've been at this point in my life where... Like, I remember as a kid, we had a, a lot of different pastors. And before the man opened his mouth, I judged him by what he looked like. And I was taught to do that quickly. So this guy, he looks the part. Another guy, he looks a little weak compared to the last guy. And I would do that with, you know, pastors or youth ministers or worship ministers. And we would just, it's like, do they look the part? And, and then they'd start talking. It's like, ooh, I don't, I don't like the tone of his voice. Don't really, I can't, that's like nails on chalkboard. I can't listen to this guy my whole life. And we can get so wrapped up. Like, I'm, as I'm reading 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian church is so ridiculous because of their infatuation with these super apostles. But, like, who, 
Who are we drawn to? What do we want in leadership? What do we want in people that we walk closely with? Ostinification? That is a word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're attracting people and they're taking that message to other countries now. Yeah. Yeah, it's dangerous because it always has an answer right when you want it, and it's usually the answer you're looking for. Or do you identify with Paul? Do you identify as one who is weak, who feels weak, and is even viewed by others as weak? We're forced to ask if super apostles or Paul better represent Christ. I mean, this is, last week we talked about kind of resetting, you know, maybe someone's need a reset button, sort of re-education on what it means to be a Christian and who God is and what it means to be in this world and follow God. Like, who represents Christ more appropriately, Paul or the super apostles? And in diving into this question, we have to address what we're going to call the apparent weakness of God. You have the weakness of Paul, the weakness of, of other Christians, the weakness of those who were poor, the weakness of those who were followers of Christ, who were maligned, as opposed to the super apostles who were not noted by their weakness, they were, they were noted in, by strength. Then we have this apparent weakness of God. What's uncomfortable about that phrase? Yeah. If God's weak, he can't handle it, whatever it is. Does that make anyone else uncomfortable? The apparent weakness of God, that phrase? The first time I read it, I was like, oh man, wow, I'm not really tracking. Dever's usually really smart in his notes and apparent weakness of God. I don't know, because, because it, it conjures up this thing that is totally not in keeping with who God is. I mean, he's the one true, powerful King of kings, Lord of lords, unmatched, great and greatly to be praised God. How might he have apparent weakness? And what I think we might see is that God has apparent weakness on purpose. The phrase is apparent weakness. It's interesting. Let's just dive into the text and, and, and work this out. Look at one nine. In one nine, it says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So those who were followers of God in Christ are people who, in chapter 1, feel the need to communicate to the church who is needing to be edified by this letter. In following God, there are times where we feel like we have the sentence of death. I would call that an apparent weakness, right? How's work going? I feel like I might die. That's generally a hard day. And if your work is characterized by such a thing, that's hard work, hard life. In 4.10, we see it again, and it says, uh, always carrying, or let's just start in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So these followers of God who have apparent weakness almost 
there's a point where their weakness looks maybe like God's weakness. They're feeling like they have a sentence of death. What does that mean? It, it's somehow connected to carrying in their body the death of Jesus. What does that mean about Jesus? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, was that a theme for the gods? No. Experiencing the weakness of humanity to the point of death? No one had done that before. There were no idols that were worshipped because of their condescending to weakness. This is entirely different. And so because it's entirely different, his followers are entirely different. And they, they we, carry in ourselves this body carries the death of Jesus. Like, so when you got up this morning, you carry the death of Jesus. When you go to work, you carry the death of Jesus. As you're persevering and doing your absolute best at all times, you carry the death of Jesus. So we're going to look at what this means. Look at 10.1. In 10.1 we see, I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Are meekness and gentleness things that are revered in the gods? In Greek mythology and all of the idolatry that took place in Rome and in Corinth, would, here's this God. Yeah, this guy is uh, you know, the lightning guy. This is the sea guy. This is the wind guy. This is the uh, goddess of whatever. Very, very powerful. Very impressive. Now here's this one though. Um, human weakness, death, uh, meek, gentle. Ooh. Like, does that inspire awe like any of the other gods? And then in 8 and 9 it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Okay, so on top of human weakness, death, meekness, and gentleness, this God that you should marvel at is also poor on purpose. Like, we're not, this, this is like a backwards rags to riches, right? This is a back, like, rags to riches is, man, he, was, he started off so poor, and he was a multimillionaire success by age whatever. No, no, no. No one started higher and ended up lower than our God. It's backwards. The richest to rags story. We are ambassadors who represent the God, of, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ made himself poor. In 1.5, Christ suffers. In 5.15, Christ dies. And in 13.4, Christ was crucified in weakness. Like, like, how would you respond if someone who was against Christian faith just challenged you? You're at lunch, and yeah, I love Jesus. And if they said to you, oh, you love Jesus? He was crucified in weakness. What would you do? Would you be like, no, he wasn't? Some of us might be inclined to be like, no, he wasn't. He's strong. He's, he's stronger than... 13.4 says he was crucified in weakness. 
Yeah, chosen weakness. So is that more impressive or less impressive to the fleshly person? To the fleshly person. It, you it, you got to let it settle, you know? You got you to, gotta, like, yes, he was crucified in weakness. What does that mean for us? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we can just go home now. I mean, that, that's, that's going to be the point. That's what we're going to... So we're going to get to, but, but no, that, like, it's supposed to be a little bit uncomfortable, but we know the punchline. We, we know who wins. We know which team we're on. We know what happens at the end of this whole thing, but we have to reckon with these things that God makes evident, that God makes apparent. Weakness, death, poor, human, very human things that are different from what everyone else would have been worshiping who wasn't worshiping the one true God. So is this what you imagine when you try to imagine God? When you imagine God, what do, you, what do most people think of when they just think of God? If you weren't raised in the church and have the understanding that most of the people in this room have, that he did it by choice, that he suffered um, in a manner that, was, um, that, n- that nothing else could accomplish what he accomplished in the manner that he accomplished it. He's sovereign. He's overall. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. We know that he's seated. But if you didn't grow up in church and someone says, how do you view, when you think of God, what do you think of? What do you think most people would say? Yeah, the big man upstairs, usually, right? Loves everybody? Yeah, yep. He's judge, you do wrong, it's death. Don't want to upset him. What do they hope he is in comparison to themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't call 911 because you hope they might be more capable of taking care of the situation, right? So, like, if people, you know, they're, they're going to call on God, generally it's going to be, I hope he can get me out of the situation. I hope he's strong. I hope he's a much better version of me. They don't think of he became poor, weakness, humanness, death. Sometimes we think he's impersonal. He's sort of a powerful, powerful force to tap into. I was reading something this week that talked about when you go to an airport, all of the books about God, if you, if you look, that they sell there, are about God being a powerful force you tap into. And they were asking, like, is that so that they feel better when they get on the flight? It's kind of interesting. Um, invincible, religious Superman, invulnerable. Like, your God is vulnerable by choice. Like, we, some of us need a reset button. Is he always smiling on your decisions no matter what they are? This may very well have been the God that the super apostles were preaching about, but it was not the God of the gospel. There's a poem, Jesus of the Scars, written by the perspective of a World War I soldier. And so, imagine a World War I soldier... Battle, scars, pain, in need of help, trauma that comes after war, being shot at and shooting at others, loss. And he says, The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. 
Like if you just read that isolated and didn't know who wrote it or why they wrote it, would you agree that that's who your God is? Other gods were strong, but you were weak. Others rode, but you stumbled to a throne. Then he goes on to say, but to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The soldier was identifying with the help and the healing that comes from the one who is a wounded healer. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Wounded Healer. And we can identify with that God, and that God, more importantly, that God identifies with us in our pain and in our weakness and our scars. Last week, we talked about being deprogrammed and reset when it comes to our perspective about what it means to be a Christian in the world. Do you have this reality of Christ and reality of the Father that you carry with you? Look at so we'll look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 6 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's like the theme verse of 2 Corinthians. It's the theme verse of our study tonight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by sight causes us to want the wrong things and to value and treasure the wrong things, like super apostles, like impressiveness, like strength. Like the point of this is going to be, do you value weakness? Do you value weakness? We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast um, about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He's saying, this is wasting away. We are weak. Our God identifies with us in this. And because of that, we're called not to walk by the way it looks and feels, we walk by the promises of God. That's what faith is. We lay hold of the promises. Greg had an amazing sermon about it just a couple weeks ago. It's not just sort of a notion that, you know, maybe I should know the promises of God. If there's any problem in your life, the best thing that you can do, any confusion, any doubt, any fear, you, you take that and you connect it to the corresponding promises and you cling to that and you pray over that and you meditate on that and you sit with God and quit rushing yourself and you spend time with Him and you let the Word do its amazing work that nothing else can do. And then, commend ourselves to you again, giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. He's saying, the super apostles are boasting about outward appearances. The super apostles are encouraging you to have the same outward appearances they have, to dress like them, to talk like them, to get the training that they have, to say messages that don't offend people. And he said, so when they're boasting about that, you boast about walking by faith and not by sight. Don't boast in sight. Don't boast in appearances. Don't boast in the counsel of men. The message of Christianity is not finally how I can guarantee you a comfortable life in this world. 
That's not the message of Christianity at all. If you think that's the message of Christianity about comfortable life in this world, you will utterly despise any weakness that you have in your life, and you will utterly despise other people's weaknesses. People will annoy the life out of you because they're all so full of weaknesses. Look at 10.12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. <coughs> Super apostles. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. It is so ugly to compare yourselves to someone else. It's so ugly for pastors to compare themselves to other pastors, for Christians to compare themselves to other Christians, for churches to compare themselves to other churches as if you have anything in yourself that is good. To know that you have nothing in yourself that is good is not this thing that we want people to hear so that they hate themselves, but it's so that you depend on God. All of our sufficiency is in God. These guys were comparing themselves to each other, and it was all about, uh, I've, gotten, I've done this, and you've done this, and I've done that. Hey, that guy, he can hang with us. He, can, he's, he knows. And it's sort of like this club that's utterly, utterly worldly that's going on in the Corinthian church. This is the work of the super apostles. And then Paul states in 5.16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Do you regard no one? According to the flesh. Because that's what they say is a proper response to God's power. We regard no one according to the flesh. And he goes on to say, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. What does it mean to regard Christ according to the flesh? What, what would it mean to regard Jesus from a worldly point of view like Paul used to do? What would it mean to regard Jesus from a worldly point of view the way that Paul used to before his conversion? Jesus is a failure. What else? He did. Oh, he saw the power, but he certainly didn't worship him. Yeah. So he could see power. He was threatened. You know, you start rounding up the followers, you know, you feel threatened. But what about compared to the other gods? What about compared to people, or gods that are normally worshipped? Yeah. Yeah. The Messiah is here to reign in an earthly kingdom. And then he dies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But if you don't know those things, I mean, it's so funny how uncomfortable this room is right now. Everybody just wants the result. But he conquered death. Of course he did. Of course he's seated and reigning. 
But Paul is making a point to say, we're going to regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. What did it mean for Paul to regard Christ according to the flesh? I think it meant he regarded Christ as untrained, rejected, mocked, and killed. Sometimes regarding people according to the flesh is just regarding people according to the visible facts. Right? That's what you can see. So he says, we used to do that with Jesus. and We're not going to do that anymore. And also, we're not going to do that anymore at all with anyone. Hold on. Think about what that means. What does it mean to, to not regard anyone according to the flesh anymore? Yes, they were lacking spiritual discernment. Yeah. So what does that look like if, if we just view people without spiritual discernment? Yeah. 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 So you, can, you, you know that people are blind if they're outside of the church. But what if they're inside of the church and they're proclaiming Christ? How do we regard people inside of the church now, according to this text? Uh, yes. No partiality. Appearances are nothing anymore. That in a culture that is so image driven, my little brother, I love him so much. He he is ten years younger than me. We grew up in different households because my parents had money when he was there, and they didn't have any when I was there. <laughs> and uh, man, he is like he is um, he is pretty, and uh, and he's photographic, and um, he, he travels and he does different shows and things like that. Um, he, he's, he acts, he sings, he dances. He is the man. And in his circles, I talk about, you know, what's that like? It is so image-driven. I mean, to the point where if, like, you take a funny photo of someone that's like, they're like, mm, and have, like, an ugly face, like, they'll pull it off, off the interwebs. Because it's all about appearances. There's no negative. Like, no one says anything negative online because every image and every picture of you at the park is actually part of your resume. And it, I mean, it's so image-driven. And here we see as Christians, no, we regard no one according to the flesh. And so within the church, what that means is appearances are nothing. When someone joins this church, you don't, you don't spend two minutes with them and make a judgment call about how effective they might be for the kingdom. You, you don't look at people, and, and even if you've known them for a whole week, make a conclusion about how useful they might be to you in ministry. Because we don't do that. We don't regard anyone in that manner because we would have all dismissed Paul and Christ. So Paul condemns the super apostles, yet he commends the poor Macedonians. So Paul's like, 
condemning the ones that everyone's impressed with and holding high those that everyone is like, what are you doing? It would be like saying, you know, getting a bunch of homeless people and, and, and people that are obviously destitute and don't have jobs and they look different and they, they're, 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 they're even wanting to look homeless maybe and, and saying, man, you have no idea the potential that's going on over here. It just wouldn't make sense at first. There's something mysterious going on here. And so he commends the poor Macedonians. Endeavor says, people who genuinely know Christ and live by faith understand the futility of living by sight. If we genuinely love Christ and we're walking with Christ and we're spending time with God, we will love walking by faith and we will despise walking by sight. Walking by sight isn't just a problem we have because of the culture we live in. It's generally a problem we have because we're not spending time with God. George Mueller is, uh, who knows about George Mueller's background? Anyone know anything about it? Unbelievable. 1800s, essentially, there were lots of orphans, and the way that it was being dealt with was they were just putting these orphans into, like, work. So you have little kids essentially being slaves in work. That's very, very brief, very oversimplified, but that was what was going on. He had a heart for them. So he had a heart for all these orphans in Bristol, England, but then he also had a heart for people to see that our God is the same God he's always been, and he answers the prayers of his children, and he loves to give his children good things. And so he endeavored to open up an orphan house without asking for any money, but only praying to God for the resources, because he was like, I want people to see what God does. So he didn't put committees together and he didn't send out letters and he didn't make appeals. He never even actually stated what the needs were. He prayed. He prayed. And then he prayed. And he opened up the first house and a second house, a third house, fourth house, fifth house, educational institute, trust. Over 100,000 orphans, I think, was the number that came through there. He never asked for a dime. He prayed for the needs. He, it says at the end of his life, he had journaled accounts that were confirmed by others of 50,000 answered prayer requests, 30,000 of which were the same day. Some of those 30,000 were things that he was praying for, and as he said, amen, it was answered only to prove that God had already started the work of meeting that prayer request before he uttered the words. His, his story is amazing. So, he was interviewed near the end of his life. He was in his 90s, and he, he just trusted God. I mean, there were times where he would bring the orphans in and say, there's no breakfast. We don't have milk today for breakfast. We need milk. Children, does God love to give good things to his children? Yes, sir. We're going to pray that God would bring us milk. And he prayed. And there's a knock at the door that a milk truck broke down in front of the house. And not only did it break down, but in order to get the truck fixed, they immediately had to offload all of the milk in the truck and the orphans can have it for free. I mean, it sounds sensational and ridiculous. You hear stories like that, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. This guy has journals full of these things where it's like, Lord, we are 1,200 pounds short of what we need. And so, Lord, we're praying and asking for 1,200 pounds. And then he would get a check from another country where there's no way that he would have gotten that check if God had not stirred the hearts by the person, by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
when you read this, I'm reading it and I feel like a little boy being taught about prayer by a man who knows the foundational realities of it. So he was interviewed and it said, uh, early he was interviewed by Charles Parsons in 1897. Um, and Parsons first asks, he says, you've always found the Lord faithful to his promise? Like people were intrigued by this guy because he, it wasn't just orphans that he cared for. He wanted to do it in a way where people were like, look at God. So this guy starts off with, so God's always been faithful? Mueller says, always. He never failed. He has never failed me. For nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. The orphans from the first until now have numbered oh, 9,500, but they never wanted a meal. The work went on, and today serves even more than that. So you've got like literally centuries of an effect here after the fact. So at this point, 9,500. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny in hand. But our Heavenly Father has sent supplies by the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when there was no wholesome meal. During all these years, I have been enabled to trust in God and the living God and in Him alone. 1,400,000 pounds have been sent to me in answer to prayer. Some of y'all be like, I'm going to pray. We've wanted as much as 50,000 pounds in one year, and it has all come by the time it was really needed. And then the guy says, I suppose you've never contemplated a reserve fund? That would be the greatest folly, Mueller answered with great emphasis. How could I pray if I had reserves? Now think about that with your American mind. How could I pray if I had reserves? God would say, bring them out. Bring out the reserves, George Mueller. Oh no, I have never thought of such a thing. Our reserve fund is in heaven. God, the living God, is our sufficiency. I've trusted him for one sovereign. I've trusted him for thousands, and I've never trusted in vain. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Then, of course, you've never thought of saving for yourself? Charles Parsons never forgot the way Mueller answered this question. Until this point, Mueller had been sitting opposite him with his hands clasped, and eyes which looked quiet, calm, and thoughtful. Most of the time he leaned forward, his gaze directed to the floor. But at this question, he sat erect and looked for several moments into Parson's face. There was a grandeur and majesty about those undimmed eyes, Parson recalled, so accustomed to spiritual visions and to looking into the deep things of God. Parsons wasn't sure whether the question seemed to Mueller a sordid one or whether perhaps it touched a lingering remnant of, of Mueller's old self. At any rate, the question seemed to arouse his whole being. After a pause, during which his face was a sermon, that's such a good line, and his clear eyes flashed fire, Mueller unbuttoned his coat and took out of his pocket an old-fashioned purse with rings in the middle separating the various types of coins, and he gave it to Parsons. All I am possessed of is in that purse, every penny. Save for myself, never. When money is sent to me for my own use, I pass it on to God. As much as 1,000 pounds has thus been sent to me at one time, but I do not regard these gifts as belonging to me. They belong to him, whose I am and whom I serve. Save for myself? I dare not save. It would be dishonoring for my loving, gracious, all-bountiful father. This guy's a weirdo, right? And he goes on to say, at the end he says, what's the secret of your service for God? Mueller responded, there was a day when I died, utterly died, he replied. As he spoke, he bent lower and lower until he almost touched the floor. I utterly died to George Mueller, to his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval, 
died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied to show myself approved unto God. This is walking by faith and not walking by sight. It's putting yourself in the hands of God and saying, whether I have innate weakness or strength is not the issue. You will capitalize on my weakness. Paul's boasting in weakness, Paul's boasting in self-sacrificing Macedonians, and his desire to display the sufferings of Christ combined with the faith of Mueller should make us change what we think real strength is. We're asking the question, what is real strength according to the kingdom? And there's no declaration of self-sufficiency and a Christian understanding of strength. Why are you strong? There's no declaration of self-sufficiency and a Christian understanding of strength. The strength of the Christian is shown in his relinquishment of oneself to God in order to rely on his promises and his provision. Paul's power and Paul's peace that he had were never found by reaching deep down inside himself to look for it. It was from God. Dever notes, it is when, tell me if you like this phrase or not, it is when God presses in on our lives through hardship that we tend to see the insufficiency of our strength and the sufficiency of his. A loving God will always knock you off of his throne. Nothing more loving that God can do than to knock you off of his throne. Living by God's strength causes us and others to rightly perceive God's glory. When we rely on God and God proves himself faithful, God gets the glory. When you're in desperate need and you're weak and you can't do hardly anything and you are in the hands of God and you cry out to God and he meets that need, you don't get the glory, God gets the glory. In what ways is this happening in your life? Can this even be accomplished if you refuse to take any risks? Does, our, does not our view of risk change? Like risky things aren't as risky when we have this view of God's strength. Have you ever perceived God's power in your weakness? Have you ever perceived God's power in your weakness? God intends for us to be weak and oppressed. Are you okay with that? God intends for us to be weak and oppressed. His is a contrary kingdom full of seemingly counterintuitive realities where the rich are poor and the weak are strong. In 4, 1 through 7, it says, well, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So you can't fake it. You can't act, well, I'm not one of the fragile vessels. I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm just stubborn enough to take care of myself. Everyone is a fragile common vessel. Everyone is a jar of clay. Why? To show that all surpassing power belongs to God. You don't say, look at how strong I am and convey to people the all-surpassing power of God. It's conveyed in your weakness. It's conveyed in a counterintuitive manner. It's conveyed in a contrary kingdom. It's backwards thinking. It takes work for us to say, okay, in this terrible state of weakness that I hate, dealing with this thing that I loathe, God will get the glory because it's only by his strength I'll persevere. God will get the glory because it's only by his strength that I will continue in loving him and serving others. Devers notes at the end of uh, this little thing, he's, he says, uh, <clears throat> 
Remember, God did not glorify himself by calling the fruitful patriarch of a large family to be the progenitor of his people. He didn't look down and say, where's a fertile man and woman that I can find to create a whole new kingdom? No, he called barren old Sarah and Abraham just to make the point that he is the provider. God did not glorify himself by calling the mighty Egyptian nation to be his people. No, he called their slaves, the Israelites. God did not glorify himself by letting the Israelites quickly demolish the Egyptians in battle. No, he hardened the heart and resolve of Pharaoh through ten plagues so that God's glory would be increased in Pharaoh's final defeat. Then he led the slaves out to the edge of the Red Sea, and there he trapped them between the water and the Egyptian army. He did not then let the Israelites turn around and fight and win a victorious battle. He supernaturally parted the sea and let the Israelites pass through, ensuring that all the glory would not go to the Israelites, but to him. Jumping ahead to the New Testament, we notice that God did not call 12 renowned, sharp young men to be Jesus' disciples. No, he called 12 obscure, dull men. He did not call a Gentile to be a missionary to the Gentiles, which is what you or I would have done if we were the mission strategist in the situation. No, he called an ultra-naturalist Jew to be the missionary to the Gentiles. We could go through the whole Bible. This is how God does things. He puts us in hard positions in order to bring glory to himself. Why? Because he's selfish and cruel? No. He does it to teach us that his glory and strength are so much better than anything our rebellious hearts can muster. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Do you feel that way? Is that where you go in your moments of weakness, in your struggles? You've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In closing, I cannot help but make one remark on how many conservative Christians have been in a state of mourning for the last 18 hours since Cruz was defeated by Trump to win the nomination. I don't have much to say about it, and I'm not going to make sweeping judgments and create a straw man that I beat the heck out of as if I have no relation to the straw man. I'm bummed about it too. But we have to remember, God likes to stack the odds against himself before he moves. That's the way he's always done it. I mean, Christians have great hope no matter what the situation is. We face terrible things. There are actually babies being killed. There are actually religious liberties being taken away. There are actually more victims coming from legislation. There are actually vile practices being heralded. Those are real battles. But we have to remember, God likes to stack the odds against himself before he moves. And we also have to remember, Christians will never be the majority before Christ comes back. That's not part of the plan. Like, I wish it was. I wish it was like, we're just rallying as many people until we have more than everybody else. Like, that'd be a little bit easier to get behind, maybe. But Christians will never be the majority before Christ comes back. God makes himself known in ways we never expect. We must make sure, as it says in 710, to see the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief just leads to death. Godly grief leads to life and freedom. Look at 12.9. In light of all that, that's what we'll close with. 
In verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Would you prefer your weakness to be taken away, or would you prefer the power of Christ to rest upon you in your weakness? For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content. What a word. (laughs) Content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you have a week full of insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, are you so dependent upon God and so certain of the strength that he has that's made perfect in your weakness that you could be content on that week? 13.4 says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. I'm weak. God's not. I have weakness. God has none. He even showed in Christ that he can condescend and show us how he can make a way for us because he understands what's going on and he faced the same trials. He took on flesh. He did what no other God has done. So we will live with him by the power of God. And he goes on at that point, after talking about weakness and talking about our own weakness and talking about how we rely completely on the power of God, he, he has this, like the, something that the super apostles would never say. Examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. That's the conclusion that he, like when he's talking about this whole book of weakness, this whole counterintuitive, contrary kingdom, at the end of it, he says like, It's like the worst concluding statement. If you're trying to sell someone on something, you end with certainty, you end on a high note, you end with them feeling like they're on board with you, and he ends with, so in light of all of that, just make sure you're not a liar and an unbeliever. Yeah. Yeah. But he probably fumbled it when he, yeah. Oh, yeah. Examine yourself to see whether you're even in the faith. Summary of 2 Corinthians and a great way for us to end this series of studies. Don't lose heart. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. Walk by faith. Do not walk by sight. And boast in your weakness. Don't just be okay with it. Get to the point where you can boast in it because of the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. Lord, without the truth we looked at tonight, I hate my weaknesses. I despise my weaknesses. I loathe them. But in light of your kingdom and how you move and what you've done and what we are and how Jesus is completely different from all other gods, we are aware of great power and great strength that is available to us in Christ alone. Help us not to put on airs. Help us not to boast in ourselves. Help us not to really privately desire to either be super apostles or be led by super apostles, but help us to see the sufficiency of Christ. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us to boast in our weaknesses because we are so aware 
of what has been done for us and what is available to us because of that. Lord, I pray that if anyone's here tonight that is that just feels down on themselves, if there's anyone here tonight that feels like they're at the end of their rope because they're so tired of, of the challenges that they face in their life or so, so tired of what seems to be a perpetual weakness or so tired of what seems to be a thorn that never wants to go away or so tired of a temptation that seems to continually rear its ugly head or so tired of a struggle that is just daunting and exhaustive, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing and salve through your word to whoever is struggling with that, that they would be encouraged and how much love we have from our Lord and how much power is available to us and how utterly dependable you are. Lord, I pray that no one would go on trying to take care of their own weakness. I pray that no one would go on thinking they are helpless in the face of temptation. Let us cling to Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.